Welcome to the In The Clouds podcast. In The Clouds is a marketing cloud podcast powered by Lev, the most influential marketing-focused Salesforce consultancy in the world. Lev is customer experience obsessed, and podcast hosts Bobby Tishy and Cole Fisher have partnered with some of the world's most well-known brands to help them master meaningful one-on-one connections with their customers. In this podcast, they'll combine strategy and deep technical expertise to share best practices, how-tos, and real-life use cases and solutions for the world's top brands using Salesforce products today. Welcome to In The Clouds podcast. This is Bobby Tishy along with Cole Fisher with our special guest today. Well, I don't, I mean, special, I mean, that's kind of a, that's kind of a big mountain to climb, Marty. I don't, our guest today, Marty Kine. Yeah. We'll the see if by the end in the middle. <laughs> yeah, maybe by the end we can decide whether or not it was special. <laughs> uh, but thanks for joining us, Marty. If you wouldn't mind just doing a a brief intro of yourself, then we'll dive into it. Sure. Yeah. So I'm Marty Kine. I'm SVP of Market Strategy at Salesforce, working in the marketing cloud today. I started life as a writer and a journalist, and I ended up working at MTV, Pop Up Video. And I realized I couldn't make a living as a writer. So I went to business school. I became a management consultant. And then I entered the advertising business at Digitas where I did measurement. And from that, I spent most of my career there. Then I went to Gartner. I was a Gartner industry analyst for five years covering marketing clouds, uh, including Salesforce. And that's how I ended up at Salesforce, focusing mostly on the CDP, DMP, and single view of the customer. I think from now on, when you introduce yourself, it should just be I was at MTV and did pop-up video, and now I'm at Salesforce. I don't know what happened in between. <laughs> Marty, I've, I've, had, uh, I've been on multiple conversations with you, and I, I always forget until you bring that up, and then like the rest of our conversation, the pop-up video theme song is in my head. <laughs> pop-up video, and I just, it's always in there now. <laughs> it was very, very catchy, and the guy who wrote it got $500 every time it was played, so he's actually the guy who made the most money out of pop-up video. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> good, good for him. <laughs> That's awesome. totally scored because during the late nineties, that, that show was extremely popular, popular. And, uh, the trouble was it got overplayed. So, you know, it only lasted a couple of years, but we had, we were on Oprah. I mean, we were big. Wow. Well, thanks again for joining. The main reason that we wanted to have Marty on is Marty is a, an expert in all things CDPs. And as we continue down this track of a CDP market and customer data platforms, the more and more that we talk to customers, the more and more we identify that they're just confused about what a CDP is, what it should do, what it shouldn't do, some common misconceptions. So we really wanted to dive into this topic with Marty to talk through a couple of key things. One, the different types of CDPs, because there's not a one size fits all CDP. What are the main functional use cases for each type of CDP? Um, building versus buying, having one versus multiple, um, which uh, a recent report came out that over 50% of companies who have a CDP actually have more than one CDP. And then determining if you're ready or not for a CDP and then some common misconceptions as well. So we'll dive into a couple of those different elements there, but. Marty, why don't you start by just kind of laying out the different types of CDPs in the landscape um, from all the different institutions and organizations that govern CDP? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. I used to work at Gartner, as I mentioned, and there's also uh, an organization called the CDP Institute, CDPI, which is run by David Robb. 
and he he was a respected Martech analyst, and he's kind of a one man shop there, and um, he's um, almost like a neutral third party, and everybody signs up to be part of the CDP Institute, and so he's done a lot of thought leadership around the space, and then Forrester has their own definition. Pretty much every analyst now has some view of what a CDP is. And it's changed. And in fact, these, these views have converged. Originally, they were quite different. Forrester had five or six different kinds of CDPs they'd identified. And uh, Gartner had a little, actually, they didn't have a number of types of CDPs, but they divided it into three or four buckets. And uh, we at Salesforce um, have decided that there are two types of CDPs, the CDP Institute, have divided it into five or six. Um, I think it's best to figure, the, the reason is that the, the market is um, nascent. So it has been in the process of defining itself. And the truth is no two CDPs are the same. So the reason there are different definitions is not that we're all looking at different products. It's actually, we are dividing up the existing products in different ways based on their strengths. And when I say no two CDPs are the same, you can have a MarTech stack with three different objects that call themselves a CDP that are actually complementary, that they, they don't really overlap, they, they work together. And so that part of that is just a reflection of the fact that this is a new and emerging market. It's a kind of a land grab, you know, it went from zero to 15 billion 2025 is the latest estimate, uh, which is, you know, fast growth. You don't see that anywhere else. So a lot of people, a lot of companies that were something else, have decided they're a CDP for very good business reasons. Um, but to answer your question directly, what does a CDP do? It, you have to do um, certain things. So you have to be able to ingest data. So there are CDPs that are in, probably in this category of what Forrester would call them data pipes. And these are vendors that are very good at with pre-built connectors to common data sources. And if it's sold into the marketing department, these would be common marketing data sources. So they make it very easy to ingest Adobe Analytics, for instance, or you know Salesforce Marketing Cloud data into the CDP. Then there's uh, data organization. So that's what happens after ingestion. And the organization piece contains two components. One is identity management. So you're trying to figure out person A and person B and system A and system B are the same person. How do you do that? Well, you can match their emails. These are, that's the same common ID. That's easy. But what about if they're, they have kind of some common fields or some conflict or so there's misspelling. So you have to do various forms of fuzzy matching in AI and ML. So there, there are some CDPs that specialize in that piece identity management, and they're particularly strong at it. There's also harmonization, which is related, like making sure the fields line up. Um, the same CDPs that are good at identity management tend to be good at kind of um, harm data harmonization. And then there is uh, a class of CDPs that focus on analytics. And when I say analytics, this is making it easy to do segmentation. They might have built-in AI and ML models. They might have a way to make decisions on what to do next. So it's not data ingestion, it's not data organization, but it's understanding, making sense of your data and doing good predictive modeling. And some CDPs don't do that at all. They have no analytics. They just, um, they, you can pipe it out to the data science team and pipeline, but um, they don't have it on board and that, that's valid as well. And then there's activation. So there might be a CDP that is um, tied into an email system so that you, know, you can do easy activation into that channel. And so there are some CDPs that are more aligned with kind of the engagement platforms. So I would say, you know, at Salesforce, 
the way we look at it is we said there's two types and we try to sim super simplify it. There's a system of insight, which would be just data ingestion or organization for analytics. And then there's a system of engagement, which is closer to the actual you know, point of, of contact with the customer. So it would be on the site. And we would define it as Salesforce CDP, that's the insight and Interaction Studio, which is the engagement. So on the, where does orchestration play into that? It sounds like it would fall into the latter piece of that. Um, but I, I have heard of some CDPs really focusing on the orchestration elements um, versus the data piece of that. And not necessarily having both of them, but we all know that there are some that do have both or claim to have both, I should say. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's true. If you think of a, mar a marketing stack or any kind of tech stack on the bottom would be the data layer. And the data layer is like, a, for want of a better term, like a database. And that's where the single view of the customer would sit. That's not really orchestration. That's just uh, a customer data object that is reliable and that you can update and, and use. Orchestration would sit on top of that. And I think of orchestration, there's two flavors of orchestration. There's uh, marketer driven, so that would be rules-based. So I'm doing if this and that, and I can set up really complicated journeys. That was the kind of thing that Exact Target does, a journey builder, we would say today. And then there's kind of where the market's going, which is ML or AI driven orchestration, which is the machine itself kind of trains itself and tries to figure out what to do next. And it's cross-channel, so it's not just all in one, it's not all on the website, or it's not all in the mobile app, um, although marketers do all flavors of all these things today. So orchestration sits on top of the customer data. I think that what's core to the CDP, and any definition of the CDP, is the data layer. It's not the decisioning and orchestration layer. Now that said, it's totally closely related, and a CDP has to enable orchestration. So in the Salesforce world, we would have Journey Builder and Interaction Studio for both rules-based and predictive modeled orchestration. But it's possible to use both of those tools without using Salesforce CDP. You'd use a, a different database. So I think they're distinct, but that said, the, a lot of CDPs you know, incorporate orchestration into their capabilities. Is there a role like, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm getting too, too future facing, but is there like a role where you see um, that delineation between insight versus actual engagement, or you know, you mentioned the um, where there's they're they're related, but there's not really overlap right now. Do you see like time in the future where a lot of that engagement may actually be handled within a CDP or be expected within you know within the just one product of suite of CDP? Yeah, I mean, de definitely like, like robotic process automation which people like AI, ML, machine learning, artificial intelligence, robotic process, automate, all of that stuff is taking things that people used to have to do using drag and drop UIs and embedding it in the product. So that, you know, if we think of moving from, in the advertising context, you move from like insertion orders and, and putting a campaign together and faxing the instructions to, you know, doing it more automated, so you set up rules to doing programmatic, which is basically to, you know, set some rules in the machine and then it will run the auction. So if you look at the programmatic trading floor, there, there aren't that many people because it's all these machines. <laughs> you know, the first time I saw like an RTB trading desk, there was like one guy and I'm like, where are all the people? 
and they aren't there. So I think that definitely the, the future of you know, technology is um, fewer people making rules. There may be people in the organization. Uh, yeah, that's a separate conversation, but fewer people making rules for what the software does to the software itself deciding. And I think that there's this idea of uh, the data center of gravity which is, I think it's true, which is the data itself, like customer data, tends to attract more data. So the more data you have, the more engagement you could get. In a marketing context, for instance, you can collect more data and that tends to attract applications and decisioning to it because it's for latency reasons. You get faster and faster and faster the closer you have the app to the data. So the CDPs themselves will have definitely have embedded decisions. We're already seeing it, like the decision being embedded in the CDP. But we're, you know, that's, it's, it's easy for us to say that, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's very hard to build these things. And right now, I think most companies are just wrangling very messy data and doing it the best they can. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of similar to when like, you know, we had we had ESPs and we had you know every channel basically had its own technology, and then like this, the initial yeah. forethought of like oh like having all this under one umbrella like multi-channel omni-channel like started using these terms, it was a long time before that road was actually paved well and actually executed within single products like marketing cloud and things like that. Like, I feel like we're yeah. I, I'm excited to see that, but I to your point, like that's that's still a lot to be in one single package of a product. That's well, I mean that's the problem with marketing is mar marketing. I think of all the tech, all the technical disciplines is the most difficult, and it's because we deal with people, and and people are very hard to predict, and and also it's like the relationship of people and technology. So an example would be the iPhone. Now I was around when it was launched, and. You know, people were thinking it might take off in two or three years, you know, to slow adoption. It, why do you need to read emails on a phone? No, it's not a consumer product. It's more of a business thing. And, and it took off in a month, you know, within 30 days, everyone knew it was a huge hit. So that's something that you can't predict. But as a marketer, you've got to adapt. Like all of a sudden now we need a, a, a mobile team. And we need people who know how to build apps and or agencies and you need a mobile measurement product and so we we as marketers have to adapt so quickly that it's almost unfair really and who knows what comes next you know these these uh, facebook glasses those could be a huge hit the ray-ban thing <laughs> so if they are you know god help us as marketers we're gonna have to learn how to market to those well i think that's where this this whole conversation comes from of they're all everyone's trying to play catch up at this point everyone's yeah. being told that they need a cdp um and i think the other hard part too for marketers right now is that they don't really know or they might want to own the cdp internally but it is giving them a run for their money and will know it really should be a a data owned entity which should live within it and so what, what are you seeing across some of the, the customers and companies that you're talking with where it's typically owned? It's, well, it's, it's, a, it's a critical function. So we're talking about customer data here. And for any, not every company, like obviously they're B2B companies, they care about accounts. And, but in, in areas like retail, where you, know, you live and die by your customer and prospect data or anything consumer facing like financial services or insurance or um, not so much automotive because they, they don't tend to, or CPG because they don't tend to have a lot of customer data, although they're trying to remedy that. 
we'll probably get there. But I think uh, in, in general, if this customer data is so central to the organization, there's gonna be internal you know, power battles and, and also people with good faith just trying to figure out what's the right way to do this is a big decision. It's not like adopting a mobile measurement vendor where if you pick the wrong one, no big deal, you just swap it out. If you're, if you're talking about transforming and collecting and you know, managing customer data, it's, it's a serious decision. So IT is always involved and marketing is often in there getting sold something by a vendor and trying to push it through. And IT is often asking hard questions, not just around security, but around scalability and roadmap. And is this vendor going to be around? And I think um, that's one thing. So they're, they're very, tend to be slow, measured, careful, more and more careful um, sales cycles. The other thing is, which is not you know, super common in marketing. It, it can be, but it usually isn't. And the other thing is that we're coming up against, um, not just us, everybody, against IT teams that are interested in building out their own, not just data lake, they probably have a data lake, but a kind of something better, like a data lake house or a data mart or their own single view of the customer and IT wanting to own that and, and use some new, new vendors out there that um, can help them. They're not CDPs. And I mean, people like Snowflakes, Snowflake Databricks. They're not CDPs per se, but they, they give you some tools. So we're, we're constantly being asked, you know, we already have this thing. Why do we need a CDP? Or, um, you know, can IT build what we need? Do, you, do we need a vendor? And there's no single answer to that question like that. And I think that's the hard part too, is uh, to your point, especially if you're in an organization that is uh, very developer heavy or engineer heavy, where uh, you know, we, we work with one particular company that they have developed a, a really unbelievable product that they really have no competition against. And so internally, they just believe that they can build anything that they need. And while that makes a lot of sense for product development, it really doesn't make a lot of sense for marketers. Right, because typically if you're going to have engineers or IT build a product or build a CDP, for example, it may not be the easiest thing to use for marketers and they, they might put their own biases into it. So are you seeing a lot of situations where companies are trying to build their CDPs or for the most part are people buying them? It, it, it does vary a lot by industry. I think in retail, they're much more open to partnering with vendors. And they see the value because because retailers are they're lower margin in general, they're they're they have big competition. You know, they're all competing with the major you know e-commerce platforms, so they they are and they're used to having a lot of vendors. So I think on the retail side, they 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 aren't really often in a position to do the build part. Although there are exceptions, I think. Um, in a, an industry like financial services or consumer, both consumer facing or on the B2B side, like wealth management, financial services tend to be very conservative. IT tends to be quite strong. Marketing tends to be pretty weak in, in a lot of cases. And so when, when you're in that industry, it's much more of a, a conversation with IT around what's feasible. And in fact, you know, if, if an IT person asks me, you know, can I build my own CDP? I'm not, I can't say no. I mean, I don't know. Do they have a lot of extremely talented engineers uh, in the basement? Ab absolutely. You know, let them go crazy. And, and they have two years of lead time to build this. They can. I, I can't tell them they can't do it. 
But on the other hand, is that a good use of their internal resources? And not only can they build, they have to maintain it. So do you want to keep up with Facebook changing its API 19 times a year, which they do? You need to dedicate someone on your staff. And once you start pointing these things out, uh, it becomes the cost associated, the kind of not that huge cost associated with an outside CDP begins to seem more reasonable as an investment. You know, Bobby and I were just talking the other day about how we, we were talking in the vein of marketers, how we a lot of times conflate, can I do this versus should I do this? Yeah. And a lot of the times we have like, we get this inkling, we get the challenge and, you know, you kind of get laser focused on this, this one goal of like, I think I can pull this off. Yeah, just because you can doesn't mean you necessarily should. And to your point, like it's, there's not really a cookie cutter solution as to whether or not you should or shouldn't do this. But I think a lot of, you know, and like we, like we kind of addressed in our discussion in marketers, we kind of blur the two lines. I can do this, but does it always make the most sense? Um, as opposed to like, when you really weigh this out, like, does it make fiscal sense? What is the, you know, yeah. long-term buy? What is the resourcing load looks like? What is this going to detract from in terms of other projects on our plates? Then it just becomes a, a, a not a question of, of attainability, but feasibility, right? I mean, I always say, like I went to business school, I graduated in 2001, actually, a long time ago. When I graduated, the marketing and IT were completely different. Marketing was people interested in, in television and meeting celebrities and talking about fonts. And it was not technical. I mean, there were statisticians somewhere, but it really was not a technical field at all. And over the past 20 years, that's changed a lot where today marketing and IT are, they're not as antagonistic as they were even five years ago. People, the IT always sees marketing as being rogue and, and um, adopting vendors without sufficient thought. And that's because of SaaS, you know, the SaaS model. And you can just give them a credit card and be up and running. And IT doesn't like that. They're like, well, what are you, do what are you doing with our data? <laughs> but it's different now. You know, marketers are much more technically sophisticated. IT respects marketing more because it's more technical. So they've, they've converged in a, in, a, in a good way, usually. It's the, the legal team that tends to be the enemy. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> Not the enemy. We'll say the, uh, the worthy adversary. I like, I like to be antagonist. I thought that was a good way of, uh, yes. <laughs> of describing them. But I, I, and to your earlier point too, and, and Cole just mentioned it as well, where you know, it's kind of the, I think that your really savvy marketers are definitely more technical marketers mm -hmm. and you see now uh, within organizations there's typically a martech team right you you typically especially in your large organizations are going to have a, a cmo and then typically under that you're probably going to have a vp of martech in addition to your more yeah. you know to your point marty the creative side of things the technology has now become equally as important to that and yeah. i think where um uh, we work with uh, one of the large broadcast companies in the country and they're they've got three different cdps and i think this is a prime example of that um one they're using segment for data ingestion just like you mentioned earlier purely as a data pipeline because segment has some really nice capabilities that are out of the box and they're not managing you know the facebook api or anything like that um they're leveraging telium um, primarily as a tag management but apparently telium now brands itself as a cdp uh, yeah. which i thought was pretty funny 
Uh, and then third, uh, they uh, leverage Linux for more of the activation and orchestration piece of it, but they're still leveraging Salesforce Marketing Cloud as the true channel activation. So while Linux might be the, the orchestration or the journey element of that co contact lifecycle, they're still leveraging something like a Salesforce Marketing Cloud to actually deploy those different things. So it's, it's interesting because I think the, you know, I, I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you guys have seen those, um, those MarTech ecosystem slides, right? That like 15 years ago, there was like a hundred logos. 10 years ago, there's like a thousand. Five years ago, there's 5,000. Now there's like a hundred thousand, which is an exaggeration. But I, I can't imagine what it's gonna look like in five years from now or 10 years from now, where not only are CDP is gonna take hold more, but you know, what other product or application are we not thinking about now that marketers are gonna need? Yeah, that's Scott Brinker you're referring to, the, the um, Chief Martech, and he has a logo map. And now there are 8,000 logos. As you said, he started with a few hundred. And I actually asked him, we, we Chris O'Hara and I wrote a book called Customer Data Platforms, which I recommend to your listeners. Um, that's the name, Customer Data Platforms. But we interviewed Scott Brinker for that. And I asked him, how many apps do you think they'll be in a couple of years? Are they going to be fewer, like consolidation? And he said, absolutely not. He said, there's just going to be more and more and more because no one ever complains about too much choice. And some of them aren't very good, but they will, they probably won't have very many customers. <laughs> so that's one thing. And the other thing is he's, he talked about a category called data ops. Like he's trying to, he's always trying to think of the big structure. And, and he had this, he said the way the market's going, there's revenue ops apps and there's data ops. And the data ops ones, like I think it's CDP, it kind of falls in this category and it's it's this is a category that uh, of of solutions that isn't marketing specific necessarily it can be used by because it's dealing with customer data so it can be used by the service team like the call center because it's customer data or even the commerce like um the storefront you could see it being used in different parts of the organization the same product and that's i think he's right like that's part of this bigger trend of, of transformation where, you know, in the same way marketing is all siloed with email over here and social over here and mobile, trying to get rid of those silos. What about in the organization? Why should marketing and service be completely separate and siloed? So trying to kind of break down the barriers in the, in the business. And that's an even kind of bigger project over a longer term. How do I know if I'm ready for a CDP? Well, it, it's it's not a simple question, but I think that anyone who's been in your team and and it's it's a marketing and it's an IT question, and it, it needs it's someone who knows the business and knows the state of your data. But if you have a business imperative, something that you want to be able to do, number one, that you can't do, number two, and number three, it involves customer data. That's number three, and number four is if you could join the customer data, you think you could do it or at least part of it, then you probably need a CDP. And uh, one example I like to give to that is there was a uh, company in the Midwest who, if you live in Iowa, you've heard of it, but they're called Casey's and they, they're like a convenience store and a gas station. And they had a, a dream where they sent out an email. They had a loyalty program and an email, and they sent out an email to everyone in the loyalty program offering a coupon off their pizza. They have really good pizza. And they said, what if we could, we sent the same offer to everyone. They're like, what if we could actually put the picture in the email of the pizza this person actually buys, <laughs> their favorite flavor. 
and because people are loyal to their flavor. Uh, would that improve response rates? We think it would, but we can't do it because our loyalty system, our email system, and our point of sale telling us what they bought are not connected in any way. So this, uh, you know, that's a, you can figure out the business value of that. You know, um, what's the upside? So that's a, like a financial calculation. And you'd say, if we do, if we could connect these, these pockets of customer data somewhere and somewhere magical, you know, then we could realize this business value. And that is a primary case for a CDP. And they were actually one of the first, they were a beta user of Salesforce CDP and they were able to do exactly what I said. And they saw a really good response to their offers for pizza. That's a, almost a silly example, but you know, any business could go through their own list of examples like that. And then lastly, what are some common misconceptions of CDPs? Uh, what it might do, what it might not do, or where you've seen some organizations struggle to really find the value in it? Well, your, your point there at the end is the right one, the value. A lot of not so much anymore, but it still happens where it, it'll be the kind of big bang phenomenon where a company will be either convinced by a vendor or they'll just convince themselves that adopting a CDP will solve other problems or adopting a CDP will be something that they'll do first and then they'll figure out how to use it. That's the wrong way to go. It, it's only successful if you take the Casey's approach, which is figure out exactly what you want to do. <laughs> like scope it out and you guys know this because this is what you do. Scope it out, you know, draw it out, make sure you know what you're gonna do and then go and find the technology that can help you do it. And so I think start with the end in mind as they say, and one of the seven habits of highly effective people, by the way. And then the other thing I would say common misconception is that CDPs are, they may have the same name, but they're all different. <laughs> so don't make the mistake of thinking that they're the same. One thing I always I think about, and uh, I, I think about the the need for a CDP, and the way I think about it, which is probably completely wrong, which I'm fine with. Probably the, not. <laughs> <laughs> the way the way I think about it is really around uh, two key two key elements. One is like data availability, and not having to replicate data in a number of different places, um, and then also being able to action on that data, which, you know, based on your definitions of CDPs, there are some that, that do both, some that, you know, do one or the other. But I, I always I always think about the CDP has really just basically provided the marketer with the ability to have a really well-structured and easily integrated data warehouse. That's kind of the way I, I think about it. Is that a, is that a, uh, too simple of a way of thinking about it? Is that completely wrong? What do you think? No, you're, you're right. I mean, the other thing I'd add is easy to use because I think that the mm, yeah. one of the key requirements, the pillars of a CDP is that it, it be marketer friendly so that I can unleash my team because that's part of the value that you're getting out of it as a user that you don't, you don't need to be writing SQL queries or even no SQL to get value out of this, this thing, so. What are, what are all the SQL developers going to do? <laughs> Don't worry. We say really no like, code to yeah. pro code. You know, <laughs> still, they, they are secure. They're the only ones in the world who have a secure job. 
Well, thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate it. I think I think we can say it was special. Cole? <laughs> yeah, it's officially special. We'll let your uh, you let your listeners decide. Yeah. <laughs> Mom, I hope you thought it was special. Uh, but uh, shifting over to completely unrelated. Before we jumped on the podcast, we were talking about uh, um, Marty has a podcast about ad tech history and kind of the 90s. Paleo ad tech. It's called Paleo ad Paleo. tech. Oh, that's great. Uh, and so we were thinking through your favorite company or product that's not around anymore. So Cole, I'll let you start. Um, so I, I actually thought of this while Marty said, uh, you mentioned the Facebook glass. Do you guys remember Google glass? And this is probably like 10 years ago, yeah. uh, yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. I remember like, you know, I was working, um, in with some marketing agencies and these are the guys that like got the, the coolest tools the first time, right when they were out before anybody else got it. And I remember seeing the Google glass and being like, Oh my gosh, like, I'm going to remember where I was when this hit the mark. Cause this is going to like change everything. And, and I'm like, it was, you know, this guy and he was, um, re he was very tech savvy early adopter on everything. And he had, so he, he showed him to me kind of inside and out. And I thought it was super cool, except like in all of our meetings, randomly, you'd like look over and he's just kind of like looking off into the left. And like uh, reading, you can see his lips moving and stuff like that. It was like, hey, you're clearly checking emails while the rest of us are having a meeting here, right? It was really sneaky, but you know, like it never, it never took off. It was just kind of like one of those things that just like you saw a few of them, you got like this, this feeling it was a big build was about to happen. And then they just vanished. And I don't know if it was like impractic impracticality of them or how like rude everybody was when they were like driving or in meetings with these things on, but I don't know why they disappeared. Yeah, they had a camera too, didn't they? It was like yeah. a little camera. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was pretty just, slick. Yeah, I thought I thought it was, but yeah, I don't I don't know if it was safety issues, what was wrong with it, but so is yeah. Facebook Glass just a reimagined Google Glass then? Probably better. I think I it's called so. Ray-Ban. They, they might be sunglasses. Like, I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, because they partnered with Ray-Ban, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Technology meets style. So it'll, it'll definitely be better looking. Oh, man. Can you imagine jumping into the lake and forgetting your your uh, <laughs> Facebook glasses are on? Oh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a different level of disappointment when you lose your sunglasses. Marty, how about you? Well, I was thinking of, uh, in, on my podcast, I've talked to some of the one of the co-founders of DoubleClick and some of the people who are who are around in the early years of DoubleClick, which is like 1995. So I had an ad server bought by Google, and I was reminded that there was a big competitor to DoubleClick as an ad server called Atlas, and it was back in like 1998, 90 or in the early aughts. Uh, big companies would pick one or the other, like oh I use DoubleClick, oh I use Atlas, and um, Atlas was eventually acquired by Microsoft and then it was bought by Facebook and it kind of, I guess it lives on in some measurement things, but it basically disappeared as an ad server. And so it's kind of wonky, but I, I miss them because they were a competitor to this thing that went on to become a, basically a monopoly in ad serving. <laughs> so I'm like, what happened to Atlas? Why didn't that work out? I don't know. Mine is very nostalgic and, uh, like of a simpler time, I really miss the AOL dial-up noise. Like just the <laughs> modem. 
<laughs> yeah, just the whole like the whole AOL in general, though, it was uh, like it's it's like the whole I think that's why I love the movie You've Got Mail, because mm -hmm. it it really like represents that whole piece. Right. It's uh, like Meg Ryan has this monologue at the beginning of the movie where it's like the it's like hope. Right. Like you you're logging on, you hear it. Like, do I have any mail? Like it was when it was such a foreign concept still. And only the only mail you would get would be some spam from somebody who you had no idea what the brand was. But then like, I remember the first time I would like talk to my buddies on AOL instant messenger and you pick out your AOL name and all that kind of stuff. Like, oh, what was your guys AOL's name? Like your first uh, screen name. Mine was Cole Fisher 307. I was just my oh, yeah. name, Marty Kahn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was it because there were three, 306 other uh, Cole Fishers? Yeah, it was a really popular name at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it was my, that was my dorm room name. That was my dorm room. That was the Dylan of uh, whatever that year was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone oh, was named Cole back then. I remember that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, Marty. Really appreciate it. Um, as yeah, always, thanks we'll for having me. You bet. And uh, as always, you guys can reach out to us in the clouds at lovedigital.com. Feel free to reach out with feedback or topics or folks you'd like to um, hear on the podcast. Thanks, everyone. Mm -hmm.